please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We're approaching the runway to complete our journey through the book of Hebrews. And tonight we're going to be looking, Lord willing, at verses 7 through 16. And you'll have to bear with me because 7 through 16 are on a page turn. So I'm going to be challenged, but that's okay. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ is intrinsically countercultural. And as soon as we try to make the prevailing culture gospel supporting or gospel advancing, we will necessarily compromise or dilute the gospel. Now, you may say, really? Why? Why can't we have a Christian culture? Well, the answer is because you can't expect unconverted people to live as Christians and to understand and agree with that which Scripture says can only be spiritually discerned because it's foolishness to them. There was a great experiment back in the early uh, or, or the, uh, I guess, late 1600s in our country uh, in Massachusetts, the Puritans trying to establish a Christian culture. Problem was, some of the people weren't converted. So, there was a, a Baptist minister named Roger Williams who left, and he went to Rhode Island and st- established a, a, a new colony there based on Baptist principles of freedom of religion, not enforcing any particular religion, but giving people the liberty of their conscience to believe what they uh, truly believed and live in light of that. And the reality is we should hope and we should pray for freedom from interference, freedom from persecution. But you and I should not expect the culture around us to approvingly cheer you on to the celestial city. The world in which we live is no friend of grace. It doesn't matter what part of this world you live in. In fact, in John chapter 15, I'm going to read this, but we're going to be in in Hebrews in a moment. Jesus said this to his disciples. This was in the upper room. Uh, uh, Before he he served the Lord's Supper to them, I guess. But Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I don't like people hating me. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. So Jesus, in this last discourse with his disciples before he went to the cross, warns them about hatred that's going to come to them from the world. Now, in that particular context, who constitutes the world? You might immediately say, well, Rome, the Roman occupiers. Well, actually, the Roman occupiers hated Rome, but I don't think they could care less about Jesus. He was irrelevant to them. Who was it that persecuted Jesus and hated him? Who was it, as we read this morning and, uh, and, and, and heard about in Mark's, Pastor Mark's sermon, that secretly plotted to arrest and kill Jesus? It was the Jews, those who had rejected Christ. And he said, you rejected me because you rejected him who sent me. So it was the Jews who rejected God's Messiah and remained unbelievers. So in that day, in that particular context, as religious as they looked, they fit the description of the world that Jesus was speaking of in John chapter 15. 
It was a predominant Jewish culture, and it put enormous pressure on Jewish Christians to abandon their devotion to Christ, conform to their values, their beliefs, their practices, and so forth. And Christian, hear me, there's nothing new under the sun. These cultural currents for first century Jews were strong in opposition to faith in Jesus Christ. And the, the, the writer of Hebrews says, remain faithful. He's a faithful Jewish pastor writing to, to Jewish believers, and he says, uh, persevere, be faithful to the very end. And as we come to this uh, chapter 13, we're coming to some concluding exhortations. We're going to talk about a bit about what it means to persevere in faith. And so the text this evening really is a call to identify with Jesus Christ in spite of the opposition of the community around them. In their day, it was Jewish opposition. In our day, it's a little bit different. But Jesus, remember, was despised and rejected by men. And he said, don't kid yourself. The servant is not greater than his master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you too. So the call to us, to you and me tonight, if you're a Christian, the call is to be willing to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ before those who reject him and be willing to endure their rejection as well. So please follow as I read Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to begin reading in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same today or yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood uh, is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good, to the, to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Five points that I uh, want you to draw, that I want to draw out and want you to pay attention to tonight. Uh, four of them are admonitions, and one is an important observation right in the middle. First of all, remember your leaders who introduced you to Christ. Remember those leaders that introduced you to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, stay the course. Hold fast to Christ as you were taught. Don't turn back. Don't, don't abandon. Don't, don't lose heart. Don't give up. But then in the middle, two sacrifices two altars. We're going to to see how uh, that contrast is going to point us to Jesus. And the fourth point then is to identify with Jesus, this second sacrifice. Identify with him outside of the gate. And then finally, offer up to Jesus acceptable sacrifices. So, that's the flow of what we want to accomplish tonight. All five of these points tell us swim against the prevailing culture. Swim upstream, as it were. So, first of all, remember your leaders who first introduced you to Christ, verses verses 7 and 8. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God, consider the outcome of their life, and imitate their faith. Now, we're not talking here about present leaders. That's verse 17, 
right? We're talking about those through whom they first came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the leaders through whom you first heard the gospel. In fact, in chapter 17, there are actually three different distinct group of leaders referred to. First of all, we have these, those who were the very first leaders of the church. And it's possible that they moved on. Uh, we know that Peter was started in Jerusalem. He eventually ended up in Rome. And there were others that moved from time to time. It's possibly they've already passed away and they've gone on to glory. Uh, there's no, uh, no indication who it was or what happened to them. But they're no longer there. That's the point. And the instruction is to remember them to consider the outcome of their life, and to imitate their faith. We'll unpack that in a moment. But the second group are present leaders, verse 17. Those who are presently keeping watch over their souls, and it says, for them, you're to obey them and to submit to their authority. But then thirdly, the, the writer of Hebrews, verse 22, includes himself as one of their leaders. Look at verse 22, very interesting. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. I've written to you briefly. And he makes clear in uh, verse 19, he says, pray earnestly that I might be restored again to you basically sooner than later. So he had been serving them in some pastoral capacity. He's no longer there, but he's writing to them because he's aware of the struggle they're enduring. And he says, uh, bear with this word of exhortation that I give to you. This is one of the reasons I don't believe that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, by the way, because this is a Hebrew congregation or Jewish congregation in the middle of a Jewish culture, and Paul was the apostle of the Gentiles. And there's no record anywhere in the New Testament that Paul ever served or pastored a church <clears throat> below or beyond, uh, 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 not Caesarea, I'm drawing a blank, Antioch, which was in Jewish or in a Gentile congregation. And so, uh, I, I, it, it doesn't make sense that Paul would be the author of Hebrews for a number of reasons, but that's certainly one of them. But the instruction here is, bear with this word of exhortation. Some of his words and warnings were actually a bit strong. It probably made the people feel a bit uncomfortable. Sometimes the, what we say from the pulpit uh, is very agreeable. It's easy to listen to. and like, yeah, that's great. Sometimes it's a little more challenging, a little more difficult. And the appeal is, bear with those words. Bear with those words as well. Well, there are three admonitions regarding these first leaders, those through whom they heard the gospel. First of all, remember them. Uh, one of our former pastors, Nicholas Alford, co-authored a book with Nick Kennicott called In Praise of Old Guys. And it's an appreciation for the wisdom that they gleaned from older pastors who had direct influence in their lives. But they didn't just stop with the men that they knew. It, they also went on to the even older guys whose writings had influenced and shaped their hearts and their lives. And what we're reading here is to remember those who have had this kind of impact, this formative gospel influence in your lives. And particularly, not just uh, the, the friend who happened to lead you to Christ— I had a, a guy that was two years older than I am who led me to Christ, but there was no authority there. This word leaders implies authority. So speaking of those pastors, remember them. First thing it says is, is remember, recall the impact of, uh, and the influence they had on your life. And that recollection should lead us to give thanks to the Lord for that grace of faithful pastors, faithful, gracious guides who loved us and served us well. But it also should lead us to say, don't lose that focus you had at the beginning. Remember what they said and, and, and stick with it. 
That leads to the very next admonition. Consider the outcome of their life. You're swimming upstream. You're living counterculturally. It's hard. There's pressure. It was hard for them too. They endured the pressure. But look at the outcome of their lives. They resisted those cultural pressures. They, they lived by faith in the Lord Jesus. They set their eyes upon him who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despising the shame. They ran with endurance the race marked out before them. They laid up treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth. They lived well and they died well. And they were never put to shame. And we know that. We don't know who they were, but we know that because that's the promise of God. And the world, the culture around us is living for Jesus is for losers. And he says, consider the outcome of these heroes of your faith. Are they losers? Are they actually overcomers? They were faithful. They lived fruitful lives because this gospel that they told you is true. This God to whom they pointed you is faithful. So remember them. Call to mind. Uh, consider the outcome of their lives and then imitate their faith. That's really the point here. They believe the gospel because it's true. They believe Jesus because he's real. They were faithful to Christ, but more important, Jesus was faithful to them. And so, hearkening back to the instruction in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, we're to be imitators of the faith and patience of those who inherit the promises. Imitate their faith and their patience, their willingness to wait on God. But secondly, I want you to see in verse 8, we are to keep our eyes fixed on our constant and faithful Savior. Verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As you read through this passage, you might come to that and go, that seems a little unrelated to everything else he's talking about. It just sort of throws that in and then keeps moving on. Uh, and if you don't look carefully, you could, you could arrive at that conclusion, but that's not actually correct. There are some who lift it out of its context entirely, and they try to make it say things it doesn't say. For instance, I remember reading many years ago a defense of the charismatic gifts continuing today. And one of the reasons they defended that is because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, go to yesterday, before the day of Pentecost, and those charismatic gifts were not out there. So how could you say that Jesus is the same, meaning the gifts are always there? They certainly weren't there before he came on the scene. So to, to take that statement and make it say something about the gifts of the Spirit is what we call eisegesis, reading into the Scriptures, something that is not there. It also doesn't mean that Jesus has manifested himself in the same way throughout all of redemptive history. That's just not true. There was a time before the incarnation. There was a time of the incarnation where he was the man of sorrows, acquainted with suffering. There is now his exaltation into glory. And I don't believe Jesus is any longer a man of sorrows experiencing suffering. He is mindful of that in his own past, but it's past. And he's going to come back as the triumphant, reigning, glorious king. And every eye will see and every knee will bow. And every tongue confess, he's Lord. No one will despise or reject him any longer. Some will flee from him. So to say he's the same yesterday, today, and forever doesn't mean he's manifested the same at every phase of redemptive history. It doesn't in any way undercut the incarnation in these various progressions of redemptive history. But it does mean that God is unchanging, that God is immutable. And Jesus, as God, is unchanging. His glory clearly was hidden when he walked on the earth. I mean, if, if his glory had been clearly seen, they wouldn't have despised and rejected him. They might have run from him, but they never would have tried to kill him. The day will come when his glory will not be hidden, where every eye will see 
and every knee will bow. He's the same. But he's manifested differently for different purposes at different times. That reiterates the thought in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, uh, where the writer says, And you, Lord, lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. See, he's the same forever, and he doesn't change. All you created, th- those things will perish. They'll wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you'll roll them up, and like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. That's what we're getting at. Reiterating at the end of the book what we're saying at the beginning. And remember those leaders who pointed you to Christ. Whatever the changing circumstances of your life, you know Jesus does not change. And if Jesus does not change, even though those leaders who first spoke the word to you, even though they're not here any longer, even though your circumstances may have changed, he will not change. He is the same. So don't turn back. Don't lose heart. Don't cave in to the pressures of the culture trying to woo you back into the fold of Judaism in that day, in our day, different pressures. Imitate the faith of those who've gone on before. They found Jesus faithful. You and I will as well. So we're to imitate their faith. The second thing we need to see here is that we are to hold fast. We're to stay the course and hold fast to Jesus Christ as you are taught. Verses 9 and 10. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now, what are the strange and diverse teachings that the writer has in view here? Well, there's a hint in the text that says the heart is strengthened by grace, not by foods. So apparently there's some kind of teaching, and I, I, I'm, I'm quite certain it says these Jewish dietary laws actually have genuine benefit or advantage spiritually, whether they tried to impose them and say you have to observe these or it really help you if you will. And the writer says they're of no benefit whatsoever. These foods have not benefited anyone devoted to them. So he's apparently talking about these Jewish dietary kosher uh, regulations. Paul insisted that to, uh, or, or Paul taught to, to insist on those dietary regulations, to impose them on others, particularly on Jewish converts, was a denial of the very gospel itself. He rebuked Peter. When Peter first came to Galatia and met with the believers there, He met with Jewish believers and he ate with them. But then when Jews from Jerusalem showed up, he withdrew from the Gentiles and would no longer eat with them. He would only observe the kosher uh, regulations. And Peter said, you have insulted these dear brothers uh, over food. The Judaizers were insisting on opposing Jewish laws on Gentiles believers. Uh, Not just dietary restrictions, but, but, but but but. circumcision as well. The, uh, the commentator Richard Brooks says this, he observes, observing these dietary restrictions were not evil. There was nothing wrong with a Jewish Christian continuing to observe Jewish practices. There's nothing wrong with that, okay? But Brooks says, and I agree with him, but they were never intended to be permanent. They were vestiges of the old covenant, but the new covenant is not like the old covenant, and it's a covenant of grace. And the 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 thrust throughout the New Testament is freedom from those strictures and from those, from those ceremonial laws. Peter falls into a trance in Acts chapter 10. And 
uh, it says that he saw the heavens opened up, something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And they came, there came a loud voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that's not, that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. And he actually had that vision three times. The Lord had to repeat it three times to get through Peter that this is no longer applicable. And it's every kind of animal. He says, it's all there. Anything on the menu is acceptable. But part of the pressure the Jewish culture was placing on Jewish believers is, is, is to go back to those dietary practices. And for us, that just seems really foreign. We can't imagine how intense that kind of pressure might be. A family gathering, all manner of social interactions. Did you observe these kosher dietary laws? I'm not coming to your house. And you can see what that would do. But the issue is not just what was on the issue. The issue is also why is it on the menu to begin with? Uh, he says in verse 10, we eat from a table that is infinitely better. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now, there are some who suggest that what the writer is saying here is there is a heavenly tabernacle or a heavenly temple, and there's a physical altar there that, that Jesus' blood was placed upon and... Uh, there's nothing in Hebrews to indicate that, all right? This physical altar points symbolically to the cross where Jesus died. This heavenly altar is infinitely superior to the physical temporal altar. That, that holy of holies, that mercy seat was concealed by, by a veil. But when Jesus died, that veil was torn in two because that distance, that, that stay out, was no longer necessary to cross, put an end to those restrictions. You remember the priest would offer the sacrifice. He'd take the blood inside and put it on the mercy seat. Uh, some of that, uh, certain, certain parts of that animal sacrifice, the priest and his family were then allowed to eat. And then the rest was taken outside. The carcass was taken outside and burned outside the camp. Pastor Mark talked about that when he uh, preached through Leviticus 16 recently. But what we read here is the priest who ate that food that was on the altar derived no benefit from that food. That food had no sanctifying influence in their lives. But he says, we get to eat from the table of the king. We feast on the Lord Jesus Christ as we uh, observe the Lord's table this morning. It's a symbolic reenactment of the gospel drama. Jesus body is broken. His blood is shed. He tells us in John 6 we're to eat his body and to or eat his flesh and drink his blood. He says, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Jesus is not advocating cannibalism, is he? Of course not. Eating his flesh, drinking his blood is simply symbolic language to say believe in his sacrifice which atoned for our sins. It's to embrace, it's to accommodate, it's to, uh, to, to participate in the benefits of his sacrifice. And so, symbolically, we eat of his flesh, we drink of his blood at that heavenly altar. And he says, these unbelieving Jews have no part of that altar, no part of that table. You know, the culture we live in, one of the common afflictions you may hear about is called FOMO. 
I think anybody under 30 knows what FOMO means. Some of the older folks, I didn't learn, know until recently. I think Mark told me. Because he's way cooler than I am, I promise. But anyway, uh, FOMO means fear of missing out. And we live in a culture, that, that's one of the reasons that social media is so powerful. You, the idea of putting down my phone and missing something that everybody else hears about is just unthinkable. And so there's this terrible fear of missing out. You don't want to miss out on the action. You don't want to miss out on what's really happening. And the Jews put incredible pressure on these Christian believers, these, these Jewish believers, and they excluded them, said, you are missing out. But the reality is, he says here, no, it's these, it's these unbelieving Jews. They don't get to eat at the right table. They're the ones who are missing out. And today, the cultural pressures are different, but they're enormous. And this, parents, please understand, your kids are under enormous pressure. As the culture says to them, you are missing out. Your mom and dad uh, are making you go to church on Sunday when all their friends are off at the lake or other stuff, and they're just missing out. And, and, and your parents are not letting you stay out all night, and your friends are, and your kids are missing out. And I'm not saying relax any of these standards and commitments. We need to convince them that those things are so much better. We need to help them see that the table at which we eat is infinitely better than the table, the scraps that the world has to offer. Our world says, says to us, living for Jesus Christ is for losers. It's not true, so why waste your time on fairy tales? And so there's this, this, this great pressure to abandon the faith or at least compromise it significantly. But Jesus said in John 10, it's the thief who, who, who comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And all those Bobbles and, 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 and spectacles and experiences that the world has to offer are merely to, accom to compensate for the fact that they do not have life abundantly. So they're trying to fill up that void, that God-shaped vacuum with every experience they can possibly find to try to satisfy the aching emptiness in their souls. And we want to show our kids that Jesus is a fountain of living water, that whoever believes in him it flows from within and bubbles up, and we never need to thirst again. We don't miss out if we have Christ. Jesus is the one who gives us life that truly is life. You remember the parable of the rich fool who, who has this, he's, he's, a, 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 he's a farmer. He owns a big farm, but he has this bumper crop, and he says, I don't have big enough barns to store all my crop. I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. Then I can store it all up, and then I can take life easy. And the Lord says, you fool. This very night, I am going to require your life at your hands. Then who's going to enjoy that which you've laid up? See, he's laid up treasures on earth, but he was bankrupt in the economy of heaven. Those who live for this world, they're the ones who are missing out. So the next portion in our text uh, it draws a contrast between these two tables, these two offer, altars, these two sacrifices, verses 11 and 12. The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins are burned outside the camp. They're discarded. They're, they're, they're considered unclean and worthless. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. See, the, the high priest would offer this animal sacrifice. He'd sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat 
and that was called a sacrifice for sin. But there's a problem there, isn't there? Because we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 13, for though it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These were symbolic, pointing to what Jesus alone could do. It's only his sacrifice that takes away sins. The bodies of these animals that were sacrificed, it's a carcass, it's, it's worthless, it's, it's become unclean, it's dead, and it's taken outside the camp or outside the city, and it's thrown in a, a, a refuse pit and burned. Well, Jesus was taken outside the city gates. He was excluded from the life of Jerusalem. Remember the, 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 when he carried his cross, he went outside the city, and that's where the crucifixion took place. So he was outside the camp, as it were, and that's where he suffered. Despised, rejected, treated as one unclean. Clearly understood in the scriptures that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed, and he bore that curse, but he did so to take away our sins. He did so for you and for me, if you're a Christian. And so the Jews who hated Jesus, they look at his death on the cross outside the camp, bearing that curse and that shame and say, he's getting exactly what's coming to him. That's what they thought. We understand his suffering outside the gate was for our benefit, for our redemption, for our salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin, made him sin for us, literally in our place, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was treated as guilty and punished the way my sins deserve. I am rewarded as righteous the way his righteous and perfect obedience deserves. That's the great transaction of the gospel. Jesus willingly was treated as unclean, as a reject, but it was his suffering that actually paid for our sins. That's what sanctifies us. That's what makes us holy. And like this rejected, discarded carcass of animal sacrifices, he suffered outside the city gates. But unlike those animal sacrifices, his blood truly cleansed our sins, and his dead body didn't stay dead for long. He rose triumphant over sin and death. And, but if it's true, we have these two altars, the physical altar and the cross. We have these two sacrifices, the, the, the blood of bulls and goats that can never take away sins, and the once-for-all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, who was not only the priest, the offerer, but he was also the offering, and one sacrifice takes away the sin of his people for all time. And if that is true, and it is, there are two inescapable conclususions that we're left with here in Hebrews chapter, first, chapter 13. The first one is we need to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ outside the gate, verse 13. Therefore, because he suffered outside the gate for us to sanctify us, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have a lot, no lasting city, but there we seek a city that is to come. Therefore, because of that, let us go to him. Precisely because Jesus suffered such reproach and shame. Precisely because he purchased our redemption through his blood. Precisely because it is his blood alone that can take away sin. Because of those things, because he did that for us, let us go identify with him even if it is costly. Look again at verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Jesus said, the servant's not greater than his master. If they hate you, they're going to hate me too. 
And the writer of Hebrews is saying, let's embrace that. It doesn't mean you just go out and say, here, here I am, nail me up, beat me. We're not inviting it, but we're not running from it either. We're not hiding from the reproach that falls upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are times and places where Paul retreated. He made strategic retreats rather than being put to death. There are times when Jesus knew it wasn't time yet, and so he made a strategic retreat until it was time to lay down his life. But the call to us is not go silent. It's not protect yourself at all costs. The call to us is be willing to bear the very reproach of your Savior to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus. Don't be ashamed of the one who is not ashamed to die for you. The Jews despised Jesus. They despised his followers. And we read here, don't be ashamed to join in that company. Don't shrink back from the shame or from the reproach that he endured for your sake. Young people, that is hard. It's just hard. It is. If you have, you may have friends at school that aren't believers who think you're nuts. You may have friends at school who profess to be believers, but they don't want to go overboard because they want to be like the world. And they look at you and they think you're nuts. And there can be some reproach. And there can be some ridicule. And there can be some ostracism. And sometimes it really hurts. And we can't soften that blow in the short term, but we can in the long term. But the beginning is, if Jesus did that for us, we ought to be willing to do that for him as well. Mom and dads, we need to model that for our kids. And we need to help them when it comes crashing down on them, which at some point it will. The culture we live in, they they may not have crucified Jesus outside the gate. What our culture is doing is they're trying to redefine Jesus. They're trying to redefine who he is and what he came to do. So they promote a Jesus who's foreign to what the Scriptures teach, a Jesus who's all about acceptance and tolerance and love, a Jesus who loves and accepts everybody just the way they are. A Jesus who would never tell the woman caught in adultery, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. He would not have said it. Their Jesus would never say that. They promote a Jesus who never judges, who never calls out sin, who wouldn't dare say, you snakes and you vipers brood. You're making your followers twice as much sons of hell as you are yourself. They have no part of Jesus like that. They promote a Jesus who gets us. No matter how perverse No matter how wicked, no matter how disobedient, no matter how self-centered your life may be, he gets us, and he's happy with you right where you are. And Jesus, who would never call men to repent, to turn away from sins, to deny themselves and take up their cross, a Jesus who lets you define him however you want to and who allows you to define yourself however you want to. That's the Jesus this world loves, and it's a false gospel. They promote a grossly unbiblical view of Jesus. And that's the pressure they're putting on believers in our day in all manner of ways. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, the proclamation that John hears is, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. The Jesus this world wants to promote Oh, he wouldn't dream (laughs) 
of coming in clouds of glory and causing people to wail. Oh, he would come much more comforting. He'd be a gentle Jesus. He might be a lamb, not a lamb slain for sins, just, just a lamb. Certainly not a lion, not a conquering warrior. The Jesus they promote is no mighty warrior that would defeat his enemy. He's an insipid, amoral, gentle Jesus who would not hurt a flea. And that's who they want you and me to embrace. And if we don't, we're the bad guys. <laughs> we'll bear the same reproach the true Jesus bears in this day and everywhere else. And here's the amazing, amazing thing. We have a, what you might call a hyper, an open-minded, hyper-tolerational culture. And the one thing they won't tolerate is sincere biblical Christianity. And if you're going to identify with Jesus as he's presented in the Bible, and if you're going to identify with the Jesus who calls for men to repent of their sins and put their trust in him, those who hate the biblical Jesus will hate you. And so we need to be willing to bear his reproach. Biblical Christianity is countercultural wherever it appears. And so we're called to go outside the camp, outside the gate, and bear his reproach with him. And the writer assures the cost could be high, but it's worth it. The, the eternal reward, reward compensates for present reproach. Verse 14, for here we have no lasting city. Whatever they might take, you're not going to keep anyway. But we seek a city that is to come. Remember back in chapter 10, verse 34? He reminds him, he says, you had compassion. Back in the early days of their, of their walk, he said, you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Today, if a Christian's property is plundered, if Christians are excluded from opportunity because they're Christians, sadly, too many American believers don't rejoice that we've been counted worthy of suffering shame for the name. We don't consciously say, I identify with my Savior and bear their reproach. We pick up the phone and call our lawyer, and we call our congressman, and we call the news station, we call all our friends, and we say, how could we have this injustice in this country? It, the reason we have this injustice in this country is because this world is not a friend of grace. And yes, it's getting more hostile, and we're probably not going to be able to change that. We hope that we'll have religious freedom as much as possible, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that we are faithful to the end because we have a city that can't be taken away. Abraham in chapter 11, it says, by faith, he, he, he went to the land of promise, but he never built a house. He never built a city. He lived in tents as a nomad his entire life, as did his son and his son after him. But that wasn't a problem. Verse 10 tells us, for he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Can you imagine how cool it would be, the new Jerusalem designed and built by God himself? We're called to imitate Abraham's faith and his patience. He set his heart on that city which is to come, a lasting city with foundations. Again, remember, the prevailing culture is afflicted with FOMO, fear of missing out. So the world's answer is grab onto all the pleasure, all the experience, all the whatever you, you can possibly get all the treasure you can get, all the experiences of life that you can, all the Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat friends that you can amass whom you probably never have met and never will meet. But that's irrelevant. 
In other words, the world's answer to FOMO is lay up treasures for yourself on earth. How utterly delusional is that? They'd say, why would you forego the good life? Well, because it's not going to stay good for long, and it's going to be infinitely better later. Jesus is very clear. Moth and rust are going to destroy. Thieves are going to break in and steal. But those treasures in heaven are immune to anything that would threaten their eternal, not just enduring, but fulfilling and blessing and joy. The writer of Hebrews assures us, this, this, this lasting city, it's worth the wait. Paul tells us this, the present suffering, including suffering of reproach, it's not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. Hear me, if you set your heart on the glory that's to come, you will never, ever miss out. You don't need to be afraid of a thing. This is the first conclusion. Identify with Jesus. And even if it costs you something, we've got a city that can't be taken away. Won't be, you, you won't lose, I promise. Second inescapable conclusion is offer him acceptable sacrifices, verses 15 and 16. Through him, through the Lord Jesus, let, them, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share with what you have for, excuse me, such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So in the meantime, while we're waiting for that city, offer up sacrifices of praise to the Lord. This word sacrifice is an important term. It's actually, it, it, has, it carries a lot of freight. Uh, it, 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 it has to do with the, 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 the temple worship. There's a lot about the sacrificial system. And the sacrifices were not just blood sacrifices for, for atonement or for covering sin. There were, uh, there were the, 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 the grain offerings and other offerings that were also called, thank, or thank offerings that were called sacrifices. We see this word sacrifice of praise. I've heard people explain it this way. Sacrifice of praise is when you praise the Lord sacrificially. You're going through a really hard time. Your, your, your heart is breaking. You're, you're, you're just, just in a lot of pain, but you praise the Lord through the pain. That's a sacrifice of praise. Well, that's not really what this term means, and it's not in this context, certainly. Sacrifice does not have to involve or imply suffering per se. It does not indicate that you're praising God through gritted teeth. It indicates that it's a sacred offering, sacrifice. It's a sacred gift devoted to the Lord. In Psalm 107, uh, it's a psalm testifying to the Lord's deliverance. And over and over, it's this recurring scenes where we got in trouble, right? And in verses 19 to 22, they're in trouble, and then they cried out to the Lord. In this case, they're in trouble because of their own folly and sin. Then they cried out to the Lord, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from, from their destruction, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous work to the children of men. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. The sacrifices of thanksgiving here are co coming after the distress has passed. Not in the midst of the trouble or the stress. And it wasn't praise the Lord in the midst of your distress with a sacrifice of praise, but rather call out to the Lord in your distress and then praise him when he delivers. That's the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. I needed help. I called on the Lord. He answered me. I'm going to praise him. I'm going to acknowledge that he is the one. He is my deliverer, my redeemer, my God. So we see this 
sequence over and over in Scripture and throughout that particular psalm. Trouble hits. They call out to the Lord. He delivers. There's a sacrifice of praise. And it's a distinctly sacred, consecrated exercise. That's the emphasis. It's part of acceptable worship to the Lord. Now, is it good and fitting to, to, to praise the Lord when you're suffering? Or do you have to wait till you feel better? No, it's always good to praise the Lord, obviously. But the point of the term sacrifice of praise doesn't necessarily imply it's through a time of suffering, praising him in spite of the pain. It's that acceptable sacrifice sanctified by the Lord Jesus himself. And one of the very practical, one example of this practical sacrifice described here is generosity, sharing with others. Don't neglect to do good. Share what you have. These sacrifices are pleasing to the Lord. Remember the book of Philippians? It's the the epistle of joy. But it's actually a thank you note. And Paul waits till the fourth chapter to finally get around to to expressing this. But he says this in chapter 4. I've received the full payment. He was in prison and they sent Epaphroditus to deliver this gift from them to provide for his needs. And he says, I've received the full payment and more. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. A fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He was not speaking about their financial condition and how much of their percentage, how much, what percentage of their income they were sending to him. Now, Philippi was in Macedonia, and in 2 Corinthians 8, we know that he says, out of their extreme poverty, they begged for the opportunity to be able to share for the relief of others. So there was a generosity in spite of their extreme poverty, but that's not the point of the word sacrifice here. It's something holy. It's something pleasing to the Lord, a fragrant offering. You give as an expression of your devotion and your praise to God, and this very act of doing good, this very act of sharing with others is an act of worship, a fragrant offering, pleasing to the Lord. Now, the prevailing culture you and I live in does encourage generosity. It's been, you know, studies have shown that Americans, by and large, are much more generous than virtually any other country in the world. But studies have also been shown that per capita, people who rarely go to church, their giving is much, much less than people who have a lifestyle of continued significant involvement in a local church. Sincere believers tend to be far more generous because we have experienced more of the goodness of God in our lives. The point here is, if you realize what Jesus gave to meet your absolute greatest need, how can you not share with others who are in need? John says the very thing. If you see your brother in need and you have this world's goods and you close your heart, how can the love of God be in you? And again, Paul described the Philippians, those in Macedonia, that out of their extreme poverty, and their abundance of joy. That's the point. Generosity is the outflow of gratitude. When there's joy over what God has done for you and what he has in store for you in the future, then we hold this world's goods a whole lot looser. We hold our time much more loosely. We see these things as things that we can invest in order to lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. That kind of generosity is countercultural. It's only possible if you have a firm hope in a lasting city that's to come. So I want to leave you with a few questions. First of all, are you going with a flow or are you swimming upstream against the prevailing culture of our day? 
Are you get, going along to get along? Or are you living in such a way that's distinct enough that it actually has an impact on your life in some ways that causes you to trust in the Lord Jesus more deeply? Young people, this impacts you a lot. It impacts all of us, moms and dads, in more subtle ways. But a lot of times for young people, it's just right there in your face. This pressure to conform, to be just like everybody else. And that is nothing new. We talked about it when I was a teenager. The only difference is what conforming looks like now in a world that so unbelievably blatantly calls evil good and good evil. It's so much more extreme. And the pressure is so much more intense. It's right there in your phone, in your hand. It's hard to hide from it many times. Jesus calls you and me to go to him outside the gates, as it were. We don't go outside the gates by ourselves. We go to him. Hopefully go out there with one another too. You're not the only one standing for the Lord Jesus. But he says, don't, don't be ashamed to go public. Don't be ashamed to identify with Jesus Christ before your peers. And, and, and I want to appeal to you, especially if you're a young person and you, you, you're confident, I have come to know the Lord Jesus. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. I, 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 I know he's given me a new heart. Have you gone public through baptism and church membership? Baptism isn't going to get you saved. Baptism isn't going to earn you anything, but it is part of what it means to identify with Jesus Christ. Church membership is part of what it means to identify with his people. I've talked with young people who profess faith in Christ, but they're reluctant to go public in that regard. And it's like they're trying to, you're trying to keep your options open? Options for what? Uh, we have a city. <laughs> we have a city whose builder and designer and builder is a God. There's nothing this world holds for us that's worth holding on to. I would just suggest to the youth leaders, it might be a good topic to talk about at Praise and Worship this Saturday night, just, just saying. But let me ask you this in closing. What is it costing you? Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. What does it cost you to be faithful to the Lord Jesus? What are you willing to endure for his sake? You may have times where it's quite comfortable you may have other times where it gets really difficult. These first readers of the book of Hebrews, some of them lost property. Some of them were in prison. Others were oppressed in other ways. Now they're facing intense pressure from their culture to just chuck it all. And hear me, the cost of discipleship can be very high in the short term. You understand what I mean by that? Cost of discipleship can be very high in the short term. But the message is, don't let that discourage you. Don't lose heart. Go to Jesus outside the gate. Bear his reproach. Set your heart on his blessing, that new Jerusalem, that city with foundations whose builder, designer and builder is God, that, that glory that is so incredible it far outweighs any suffering we may endure in this life. Hear me. In the long term, <laughs> in the long term, it's not worth comparing so if you'll set your heart on the Lord Jesus, if you'll go to him, FOMO will not be a problem because you're not going to miss out on anything that matters, I promise you. So let's go to our Savior, even outside the camp. Amen.